and that is that one of the choir members Sunday started coughing on Monday and was tested yesterday as positive for COVID. And so the only thing that we need to make sure everybody does is just remember the first divine institution of personal responsibility and do whatever you think is best to preserve your health and the health of those around you. And I think that's all that we need to really say about that. This uh, Delta variant that's going around is, um, is extremely contagious. I um, had lunch with Ruth's boss four days before he was tested positive, and I didn't get it. But Ruth had the vaccine, and she got it. And uh, his sister also got it. So it's just flaring up throughout all of his contacts. So this is a virulent strain and need to be aware of that. So uh, we just need to be take the proper precautions. My soul waits silently for the Lord, for my expectation is from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. And God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength, and my refuge is in God. Trust in the Lord at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before God, for God is a refuge for us. Before we get started this evening, we will spend a few moments in silent prayer to make sure we are prepared and spiritually prepared to study the Word and to so God the Holy Spirit can use it in our lives and challenge us and help us to put together some of the pieces of this fun puzzle we started last time on the Day of the Lord. So we're going to look at that in just a few minutes. So uh, let's bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Our Father, we are so thankful that we have you to come to, that we can take refuge in you. You are our rock and our strong tower, our shield, our defense. And Father, you are our salvation. And we trust in you because we know that you have our lives in your hand and we have the principles and the promises in scripture that say that if we trust in you and commit our way to you that you will make our path straight and so we just relax that in the midst of the battles and all the things that go on around us and indeed in the midst of this pandemic we know that just as the hairs of our head are numbered and the days of our lives are numbered that we can relax in the battle and trust in you to protect us. Father, we thank you for all that you have done and provided for us. And in our study of your word, help us to understand it and to honestly and accurately uh, deal with it as we seek to understand a complex issue. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So where we are in our study is in Second Peter, 
Actually, the verse in that title slide is wrong. We're down to about verse 10. And that is talking about the day of the Lord. And that's the opening. So this, what is described in verses 10 through 14 is related to understanding what is meant by the day of the Lord. So just to orient our thinking, we're in the second part of the third chapter covers the section from verse 3 through verse 14 where Peter is refuting the false teachers and their assumption what they're ridiculing the Christians about because they're the scoffers are scoffing as it says literally in the text the mockers are mocking is that they are saying that uh, where's the promise of his coming? You believe Jesus is coming back? Well, it's been 2,000 years and nothing's happened and none of that prophecy that you go to in the scriptures and study so much is coming true. So so why are you spending all your time doing that? Come out and have fun with the rest of us and enjoy your life. Uh, we'll all die and turn to dust. There's no meaning or value in life, so just have a good time. And that is their basic point. Uh, that's from Second Peter 3.3. 3. And the, their claim is where's the promise of his coming, which is important because it orients us to the fact that this passage is dealing with the coming. Now, is that the rapture or the second coming? It's got to be the second coming just because of the context. The word translated coming, as I pointed out in the past, is not a word that is distinctive. It's not a technical term. It's, not, it's used for both the rapture and it's used for the second coming. And we saw last time in verse 7, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved or now uh, stored up by the same, or excuse me, now preserved, that is kept, uh, tereo, kept by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And that word translated perdition is the word for apaleia, which is related to apalumi, the word for perish in John 3.16. But other things perish that are not talking about eternal perish. So it's not a, uh, it's not a technical term for eternal condemnation uh, either. But it is in the context it would refer to that because it's talking about that future day of judgment and the perdition, that is the eternal perishing of these ungodly men. And because it's talking about ungodly men, we're talking about the context of judgment on unbelievers. Now that can happen in two places. That can happen at the judgments of of the tribulation, or it can happen at the great white throne judgment. Those are the two options. Both are described with that language. So we went on to look at verses 8 and 9. Beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Uh, some have said, oh, look, because he's using the phrase a thousand years, that means this is talking about the length of the millennium. That's not what it's talking about. It's coming out of Psalm 94, and he's just saying that God is timeless. He is outside of time. He created time. He is above time. And so he perceives all of, and knows about all of history 
and, and, and always has in a flash, intuitively, directly. He knows all of those things. And so he is waiting, as verse 9 says. He's waiting. He's being pa- uh, patient uh, because he is not slack concerning his promise, but is long-suffering. He's patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come uh, to repentance, that is, changing their mind about the gospel. First Timothy 2, 3, and 4, as I pointed out last time, echoes that, that he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then we get into our passage. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. It sounds like this is annihilation, that everything on the face of the earth, including the earth and, the, and all of the heavens, the stars and everything, is just destroyed. And the term for that is annihilation, which would require an ex nihilo creation again of a new heavens and new earth. And that is one position. And that's the position that most of us have heard through most of our lives. However, there is, as I pointed out last time, another position that is held by many fine dispensationalists and scholars that the language here is, uh, is, is not language of annihilation, but it is a language of purification and cleansing. How many times we see the use of fire, Matthew 24 Jesus comes back says, I will return with fire, speaking of the second coming. That, that, and there's a lot of fire and judgment language that's pictured that way in the uh, seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments in the tribulation. And so the, that argument is that this is not talking about what happens at the end of the tribulation. This is talking about what happens, I mean, excuse me, this is not talking about what happens after the great white throne judgment. It is talking about what happens um, after at the second coming. And as I pointed out last time, I heard this from a couple of people. And I just thought, well, they've got a little hobby horse there right there. And then I began to recognize that there were more and more really solid scholars who were taking this view that I needed to investigate it more. So you're just investigating it along with me. But we're going to have to walk our way through this step by step, understanding this view. It's not a view where one side is heretical and the other is not. It is one of numerous areas where scholars have legitimate disagreement in the way they are trying to understand and comprehend uh, a particular passage. And there are things in here that are uh, difficult. I have a friend, most of you know him, uh, Bruce Baker, who has his Ph.D. from Baptist Bible Seminary. I texted him four questions last night, and I called him. I said, what are your answers? He said, I don't know. And I I said, I don't either. 
I just was hoping you, you, you're, the, you're the one who has studied so much dispensationalism. I thought you would give me insight. But see, that's the way it is sometimes. So we have to work our way through this. So we're looking at what the Bible teaches about the day of the Lord because that's what's foundational here is that this is talking about what happens at the day of the Lord. So we asked that question last time, and I went through quotations from a number of different uh, dispensational scholars, writers, the fathers of the dispensational faith as it were. And I got kind of a tongue-in-cheek comment from a friend of mine. He said, well, you sure have a lot of guts putting all that up there. Now you're going to solve a problem that none of them could solve. No, I'm just trying to let you know that there is disagreement, legitimate disagreement between uh, good scholars, good men who wrote about these things many times in their career. Schofield thought that it began with the second coming. So he would put the emphasis on the judgments of the second coming, which would be mostly the bold judgments at the end of the second half of the tribulation. But then he said it goes on through the millennium to the new heavens and the new earth. Harry Ironside, who was the pastor of Moody Memorial Church, in Chicago through the, I think through the 30s and 40s, and widely known, had a huge conference ministry, radio ministry, would come down to Dallas Seminary and and speak there. And he thought it was right after the rapture through the millennium, as did Chafer, Walvard, Ryrie, Pentecost, uh, Theme, Showers, and Bowman. Now, nearly everybody who comes out of Dallas has heard that. Dallas seemed to have a fairly monolithic view, but that was Dallas. There are other dispensational seminaries that did not have a monolithic view, but then in the next category, uh, Fruchtenbaum, uh, Mayhew, Price, that's Randy Price, Barbieri, and Tommy Ice, all have a different view. They were all trained to Dallas. Okay, and Bowman has is funny because he has a little different view, more like Walbert and Ryrie, but he takes the view that Second Peter three is talking about the period at the end of the tribulation. He was a professor at Dallas Bible College for many years, and I knew of him when I first moved to Dallas to go to seminary because I had uh, two roommates, and they both were going to Dallas Bible College. And then there's Arnold Fruchtenbaum and Dick Mayhew, who's at Master Seminary, Randy and uh, Louis Borbieri, who's taught at Moody for at least four decades, and and Tommy, that this is doesn't include the blessing of the millennium, because the, in their definition, in the, looking at the historical examples. The historical examples of the day of the Lord don't include a time of blessing. They just include a time of judgment. And so we're, um, we're looking at that. And this is what Arnold says that um, when he looks at Second Peter 3.10, he says, but as will be shown later in this chapter, this verse is best seen as applying to the tribulation only rather than including the events that follow it. That's in his book, Footsteps of, what is it, Footsteps of the Messiah, put Footsteps of Jesus, but it's Footsteps of the Messiah. So how do we determine the meaning of the day of the Lord? 
Well, you just have to go through the passages that talk about it. Fortunately, there are only 19 passages that talk about the day of the Lord, and some of those use the phrase uh, several times within that one passage. So it's not going to take us 19 weeks or even 10 weeks. It'll probably take a couple of two or three weeks to go through these passages, but we'll learn some good and enjoyable things as we go through there. So we look at this concept of the day of the Lord, and one of the questions or things that we need to observe is that when we're looking at the scriptures, there seem to be four things that are said that must precede the coming of the day of the Lord. And uh, I don't know what happened here, but I ha- oh, there it is. Somehow the pages got all mixed up. Okay, so we're going to talk about th- this in terms of the eschatological day of the Lord. Eschatos is the Greek word for last days, so we brought that into English for the study of prophecy is eschatology. So when we look at this, and we we see that. First of all, and three of these that I have came right out of, of uh, uh, Dr. Chafer's systematic theology, is that Elijah comes first. In Malachi 4, 5, and 6, we read, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Now, this is an interesting passage for uh, several reasons, and I'm not going to get into all of the details related to its potential fulfillment in John the Baptist. But in the, this is in the... Uh, last chapter of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4, which has six verses. So these are the last two verses of the Old Testament. And then God doesn't talk anymore. God is silent. And when you read through your Bible from Malachi to Matthew, most people stop and say, okay, I finished the Old Testament. I'll pick up next tomorrow in Matthew, by then you forgot what you just read. Malachi ends with the prophecy of the coming of Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And then it starts off, Matthew starts off, and by Matthew 3 you have John the Baptist who Jesus says later on, if if his message had been accepted, he would have been Elijah because he's not talking about a literal resurrection or resuscitation of Elijah and bringing him back. You're talking about someone who's coming in the kind of ministry and life as Elijah had. And so that's that's what this is indicating. There's someone like Elijah who will come uh, and be the forerunner of the Messiah, and that was the role of John the Baptist. But the other reference is to one coming who is like Elijah the prophet before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And that is more than likely one or one of the two witnesses that are described in Revelation. Now, when do they show up? 
We don't know exactly, but I would guess that since every church-age believer gets raptured at the ra- at the rapture, that they are two of the 144,000 that are saved just after the rapture or in the several weeks following uh, following the rapture. And these are the ones who are set apart by God to be uh, witnesses during the tribulation period. And so they're going to be announcing and they're going to be giving special revelation from God about what is happening during this period and and the need to turn to Jesus as the Messiah. And so what this tells us is that before the day of the Lord, they will appear. Now the question that I have not answered yet is, is there a difference between the day of the Lord and the term the great and dreadful day of the Lord? Now, most people that I talk to and most people that I read will say, well, the whole seven years is the day of the Lord, and the intense period at the end is the great and terrible day of the Lord. But when you look at the scriptures and it talks about the the tribulation as as a time of unprecedented violence and catastrophe like has never happened in the history of the world, that applies to the whole seven-year period. Uh, Daniel 12 talks about there's never been a time like it. Matthew 24, uh, Jesus talks about the second half as that way, never been a time like it. So there's debate about whether or not it is technical. Most people think it refers to the second half. And, of course, that's going to be... Um, that's fulfilled because the two witnesses appear in the first half of the tribulation. They are on the earth for three and a half years. At the end of that, those three and a half years, they are going to be martyred, and then God will resurrect them, and they will ascend to heaven, and be and that will be a visible witness. But when they die, when they're martyred, the whole earth throws a huge Mardi Gras party for, for three days. There are those who put the coming of those two witnesses in the second half of the tribulation. So if they arrive on the scene at the midpoint, then the time that they are martyred is just before the Lord returns. And they've, the earth will have already gone through the bowl judgments, the trumpet judgments, and, I mean, excuse me, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and then they will be in the midst of those final horrible bowl judgments that are much, much worse. The earth has been absolutely destroyed and devastated by all of these judgments. You've had well over half the people on, on the planet uh, die in the previous six and a half years. So I don't think anybody's going to be throwing a Mardi Gras party for the death of these guys 48 hours before Jesus returns. They're going to be devastated by then. So that just doesn't fit that they're in the second half. So the two witnesses show up in the first half, and then they're martyred at the end. So they clearly would be coming before the day. Their arrival would be before the day of the Lord, 
the whole seven-year period or before the great and terrible day of the Lord if that's the just the last half. Either case, that will be satisfied by, uh, by then, by their arrival in the first half. The second passage is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which is a very important passage for understanding the, some of these things. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 3, I want to read the whole thing so you have the context. Paul is writing because he's had more questions from the uh, uh, Thessalonian believers about it, the end times, what he has taught them before, questions he answered, explained the rapture, the day of the Lord in chapter 4 and chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. And now apparently some people are saying, well, the day of the Lord has already arrived. And so he's going to comfort them with the fact that no, now, there are certain things that have to happen before the day of the Lord can arrive, and they haven't happened yet. So he writes, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in your mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Now, there's a textual problem there, but in many manuscripts it says day of the Lord. Uh, some have day of Christ. It refers to the same thing. And then in verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will come. Now, that's in italics because it's not stated that way in the text, but that's what the Greek infers, okay? It's just talking about what it just stated at the end of verse 2. That day will not come unless the falling away comes first. Now, that is a translation of the Greek word apostasia. Now, we tend to translate that as apostasy, and there are many people who take it as apostasy. And if you want to read a good in-depth study of that, you go to pre-trib.org, go to the website, and look under articles, and Wayne House did an outstanding presentation and wrote a great paper on why apostasia refers to not apostasy, but it's core, the core semantic meaning of the word is departure. Context tells you what you're departing from. So in some cases, the uh, uh, form of the noun is used to describe the departure of a ship from harbor, uh, departure of someone on a trip. There are different ways in which it's used that way. Apostasy is really an interpretation of the word, but if it's just translated with its core value, it's just, um, it will not come unless the departure comes first. And there are many of us who believe, and uh, the pastor I grew up under also held this view, that the apostasia here is the departure, it's the rapture. And so the Antichrist, the one who is to come, is not going to appear until the departure occurs first. So we're not ever going to know who the Antichrist is. And what the text says, he will not come unless the falling away or unless the departure comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Now, how is he identified? 
He's identified because in Daniel chapter 9, in the prophecy on Daniel's 70 weeks, that time period of 490 years for Israel, remember there's a break between the um, uh, 400 and, what is it, uh, the 490, the, the 483rd week, that um, there's a break. After the conclusion of the 483rd year, it says, then the, uh, the Messiah is, is cut off, then the temple's destroyed, and there's a gap until something happens. The prince who is to come confirms a covenant with the many. When that happens, we know who he is. And that's what Paul is saying in these passages in Second uh, Thessalonians. And so... That has to happen, and when that happens, that's what really starts the stopwatch going again. That's why you know that that seven-year period is starting, and so as soon as he signs it, we know who he is, and then the, if the day of the Lord is the entire seven years of the tribulation, then it kicks off. If it's just the last half, still it's it would come so that this... Um, rapture will come first before the Antichrist is revealed and before the day of the Lord begins. So that's the second issue. The third issue, which I combined in the um, in explaining that, is that the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. So I just put all, both of those together because they both come out of that same passage. And then the fourth is the more interesting one. So turn in your Bible, in your Bibles to Joel 2.31. You can't talk about the day of the Lord without talking about Joel 2, so we'll get back to it eventually. Uh, Joel chapter 2. And at the end of at the end of Joel 2, he says. Um, this happens at the end of the tribulation. I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before, notice that word, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. There we have those adjectives again, great and awesome. So this would... Uh, Indicate if this is talking about a distinctive time, it's not just the second half of the tribulation. It would be those events immediately preceding the arrival of the Messiah. So it's before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. So uh, when does when does this happen in uh, in Revelation? Well, it happens. Well, it in the sixth seal. In the sixth seal, in Revelation six twelve through fourteen, uh, you see a number of physical disturbances, disturbances in the heavens, disturbances uh, on upon the earth. Uh, uh, there's a huge earthquake, unlike any that we've ever had, that shakes the whole earth. The sun turns black as sackcloth. The moon, like blood, stars f fell to the earth. The sky split like a scroll. Mountains and islands will be moved out of their place. Uh, 
Now, the way I understand the chronology in Revelation, the first set of judgments, the six seal judgments, occur in the first year and a half. The second set of judgments, which is the seventh seal, the seven trumpet judgments are in the second half of the first three and a half years. And then there's a pause, and this is what happens in the in the chronology as things develop in the narrative in Revelation. You first have the, the uh, seal judgments, then the trumpet judgments, and then there's a pause, and several things are described that are going on in heaven and going on on the earth to sort of bring everything up to date. And then you're clearly in the second half, and in the second half that's when you have the, the, the bold judgments. So what we see in Revelation 6.12... John says, I looked when he opened the sixth seal. Now, who's opening the seals? Jesus is opening the seals. Remember, there's this scene in Revelation 5 where the Father is on the throne and he has a scroll that is sealed with seven seals. And he's looking for someone who is worthy to open the seals. The seven seals indicate this this document is like a title deed to the earth. And this is typical the way it is described in the text indicates it's that kind of a document. And so what's written on the outside can be read by anybody, but what's written on the inside cannot be read unless you first uh, open the seals. So then only one is found who's worthy to open the seals, and that is the lamb who was slain. And so the lamb appears, and there is singing for joy, worshiping him. Worthy is the lamb who was slain and redeemed us. So that's telling you it's resurrected, raptured, rewarded believers who are singing that because he doesn't redeem angels. He has redeemed us. And so the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, begins to open those seals at the beginning of chapter 6. By opening the seal, he is, he is uh, engaging each one of those judgments. So these are the judgments that are coming from the Lamb of God. So the first, it goes through the first five seals, and the sixth seal is a great earthquake, bigger earthquake than anything that's been ever seen. Go back to Matthew 24. Earthquakes are one of the signs that you see uh, in the first half of the tribulation. There's a great earthquake, and then at the same time, the sun becomes black as as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. That pretty much shakes everybody up, but it's just beginning. Then in verse 13, the stars of heaven fell to the earth. So this is like a meteor shower. As a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. And this is so intense that it appears as if the sky is coming apart. As the earth is being assaulted by these meteors. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. That's the earth. That's why I'm saying this earthquake is worldwide. The foundations of the earth are shaken. What's the earth dwellers' response? 
and the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free man, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne. That's always God the Father in Revelation. Jesus is not on a throne. He sits at the right hand of the Father on the Father's throne. But the one on the throne all the way through is the Father. So they say, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, God the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb. All of these judgments are the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now, the question we have to ask is, is the day of their wrath equivalent to the day of the Lord? Let's look at Revelation 6, 17. Revelation 6.17 says, For the great day of their wrath has come. Now that word has come is the Greek word erkomai. It's an aorist active indicative, which means it's a past tense. They are saying not that it is coming, not that it is here, but that it is has come. It has started in the past. And so that could include the previous uh, five judgments, but they didn't know what it was until this one, which is, which I'm leaning to. That's probably the situation. the The conflict that you have is back with Joel. Joel says that the day of the that the sun is turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Well, wait a minute. If they're saying it has begun past tense, when they see the sun darkened and the moon turned to blood, then that is a conflict with Joel. Because Joel says it can't start till then. And that would indicate, too, that the day of the Lord doesn't start with the beginning of the tribulation. It doesn't start until after the sun is darkened, and the moon is turned to blood. So what do we have going on with the seal? Is this part of the day of the Lord? Remember I said that all of these people, Chafer, Walbert, um, Ryrie, Pentecost, others, the day of the Lord starts at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. But the day of the Lord can't begin before the sun is turned dark and the moon is turned to blood. So that seems to put it later, unless, of course, the term great and awesome day of the Lord just refers to something that occurs at the end of the tribulation. It's not talking about, it cannot be a synonym for just the day of the Lord. So that seems to be a possibility there. We're going to tie all these loose ends up when I finish, but we have to work our way through this. So you have people like um, Reynolds Showers, who was the theologian on staff for uh, Friends of Israel, wrote a column in Israel, My Glory, for many, many, many years, graduated from Dallas with his doctorate in the mid-60s, I believe, and his nephew, Jim, is now the president and CEO of, of um, uh, Friends of Israel Ministries. And in his 
work, he says that the aorist indicates an action in the past that's already come. So that would have to be before they saw this. So that's a contradiction. Uh, Bob Thomas, in his commentary on Revelation, says the same thing. These are some of those questions that you ask, and everybody goes, yeah, that's a problem. And they don't have answers. So if this is not the day of the Lord, then it's just talking about the early wrath of the Lamb. Uh, wrath is always used in Revelation to refer to the justice, the actions of the justice of God uh, in history. And it's used 11 times in Revelation. So let's just kind of summarize a few things. We're going to work our way through these passages. First of all, the phrase day of the Lord occurs in 19 Old Testament verses in reference to a special time of divine judgment. I think everybody agrees on that. Some of those references are to things that have not yet happened. Some are references to times when God intervened in history in the past and brought judgment on nations around Israel in uh, ancient times. But we have to look at those examples because at least two of those examples that are said to be historical, I do not believe are historical. I think they're eschatological. So in addition to that phrase, there are additional phrases which refer to this event. And you have to be really careful with these because there's a tendency that every time you see the phrase, well, in that day, that because it's used in some context to refer to the day of the Lord, because the day of the Lord is what's mentioned a verse or two before, so it makes sense that when it says in that day, which is just an idiom for at that time, you have many times where it says in that day and it has nothing to do with the day of the Lord. But there's a tendency in prophetic passages for for people to tag that as a reference to the day of the Lord when it may not be. Okay, so you have phrases like that day, the day, and then you have um, the, the, great, uh, the great day of the Lord or the day of God. We have to look at all those. So second, uh, as part of this, we see that God is bringing judgment upon um, his enemies to accomplish his purpose in history and to demonstrate who he is as the sovereign God of, of the universe. And that they all, the ones that took place historically, are all types or shadows of the ultimate future day of the Lord when the Lord Jesus Christ returns in Revelation 19.16. So let's just take some time to start working our way through a few of these, um, these particular, uh, particular passages. So we'll start with Obadiah. Now, Obadiah, turn with me to Obadiah. It's Amos, Joel, jo- excuse me, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. It's between Amos and Jonah, and it's one page, one little page. 21 verses, shortest book in the Old Testament. Uh, 
And this is the, chronologically, this is the first use of the term day of the Lord. Now, if you're reading canonically, the first use of day of the Lord is in Isaiah 2. But Isaiah probably wrote much later than Obadiah. And there's some debate about about this. So Obadiah, we don't know who he was. There are several people in Scripture who are named Obadiah. We don't know if he's even one of those. It was a popular name. It comes from the Hebrew word avad, which means a servant or a slave, and yah is the prefix, which mean, makes it mean servant of Yahweh or worshiper of Yahweh. He is bringing a judgment against Edom. Little geography here over on the the blue on the far left is the Mediterranean. The blue in the middle is the Dead Sea. Between the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea here is about maybe 50 miles. You have uh, in between the green area is the tribal allotment for Judah and to the south and uh, south and east of Judah, across this area south of the Dead Sea is called the Arabah. We get our word Arab from that word. And across the Arabah over in what is today the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan, we have Basra. Isaiah has several uh, prophecies about Basra, that the Messiah will come back in Basra to rescue the Jews, and he will lead them uh, back across the Jordan, and his robes are drenched in blood because he has slaughtered uh, one of the armies of the Antichrist uh, and rescues the Jews. This is when they call upon him. They call on the name of the Lord, and he returns to deliver them. So this is in the area of Edom. Basra is approximately the location of Petra. So if you've been with me to Israel, we've been to Petra, and you know that this is extremely rugged terrain, and there are many caves, and then when the Nabataeans came, and probably based on this text, those who preceded the Nabataeans, which were the Edomites, had also carved out uh, caves and made their homes in the, in the cliffs and thought that they were impregnable because of that. And you can see why somebody would think that if they lived there. Those of you who've been there, some of you have seen pictures. If you saw Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, was that it? Yeah, the last crusade, that was the final scene as they're riding through the sea going down to the treasury house there, and you can see a little bit about what it, what it was what it's like. But there were as many as maybe 30,000, at least 25 or 30,000 people who lived there during the height of the Nabataean kingdom. You can just imagine how much was the, is there. It's just amazing. So anyhow, that's that's the location, and uh, Obadiah is bringing a pr- prophetic announcement against the Edomites, and this is where they are. So we have to understand a little bit of background here. So Obadiah is basically talking about the long-term family feud between Jacob and Esau, 
It started back at the time, not long after they were born, when they were young men and the competition between them. And we are familiar with the stories about uh, the way uh, Jacob, the heel grabber, the conniver, uh, sort of gypped Esau out of his inheritance. And then because Esau wanted to kill him, he had to escape and go north. And he went up to his... uh, relations up in Haran with Laban and there he had to work for 14 years because he wanted to marry um, uh, Rachel and he got duped out of Rachel the first time because his his uh, uncle was a bigger conniver than he was and so you have this this competition and so it goes that way all the way through the Old Testament you have constant battles and fights between the Edomites, and Israel. But the big issue that you get into at the very beginning is when was Obadiah written? And many people believe, most conservatives believe, that Obadiah was written early, around 850 B.C., approximately. So that is before the northern kingdom is destroyed, obviously before the southern kingdom is destroyed, and it is... It is very early, one of the earliest written prophets. And others believe that it's written late. Some say just before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. Others say that it's written even later. But we know that it's written as prophecy, foretelling the future. It's not written as history. And it's most likely written very early, more like um, the date that's given is around 845 B.C., So this is the first mention of the term, and it comes in the 15th verse, where we read, For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. So this is talking about a judgment on Edom. And it's identified as a day of the Lord. Now, the question that needs to be answered, is this describing an event that occurred historically, or is this talking about a future event? So we have to read the next uh, few verses. For as you drank on my holy mountain, God speaking, holy mountain being Mount Zion, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. But on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. This is predicting a time when Israel will be living in the land. The temple will be on uh, Mount Zion, which is just covering the whole general area of, of Jerusalem at, at the, as a term for Jerusalem at that time. And Jacob will possess their possessions. So this is not talking really about a time after the uh, return from the exile. And it says, The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. Well, who's the house of Joseph? That's the northern kingdom. His sons were Ephraim and Manasseh. So that is often referred to, northern kingdom is also referred to as the house of Joseph. The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau shall be a stubble. 
So you have, uh, it's significant that Jacob and Joseph are a fire, indicates illumination, and other prophecies talk about at the time of the day of the Lord that Israel will be a light to the nations. Uh, they shall, uh, and since Jacob and Joseph are a flame, that flames are destructive, then says they shall kindle them and devour them, that is Esau. And no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Now, has that happened? No, that has not happened. Uh, the south, that is the Negev, shall possess the mountains of Esau, and the lowlands shall possess uh, Philistia, they shall possess the fields of Ephraim in the north and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead. This hasn't happened yet. So this is clearly talking about unfulfilled prophecy in the future. And the captives of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the captives of Jerusalem who are in uh, Sepharad shall possess the cities of the south. Then saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Sure doesn't sound like this is something that happened in the past. So this is a pronouncement that God will bring an eschatological judgment on Edom, and Edom will be destroyed. Now if we look at, I'm just going to hit a couple of high points here, um, if we look at this and try to figure out when this is, um, there's four invasions that are identified. There's an invasion by Shishak of Egypt in 926. This is not long after the death of Solomon. Shishak plunders the temple uh, during the reign of Rehoboam. The second option, is, which is viable and may be the most likely, it's during the reign of Jehoram, uh, 848 to 841, when the Philistines and Arabians invaded Judah and looted the palace in Second Chronicles 21, 16 to 17. And that's, that's possible, but there are passages in here which might indicate that, that this comes, for example, at the time of of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Edom is indicted, starting in verse 10, for violence against your brother Jacob. Shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, talking about Jacob. That, doesn't hap that didn't happen with the Philistine raid. That happened at when Nebuchadnezzar came in. Uh, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, some people say, well, how could that apply to Nebuchadnezzar? He wouldn't cast lots with anybody for Jerusalem. He was going to take it. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity. Well, you don't have captivity coming with, with the raid in Philistia. Third option is in 790 when uh, King Jehoash of Israel invaded Judah. I don't think that would be it. It's possibly 586. We can't say for sure because the text doesn't give us uh, enough information. But this is, they are, the Edomites are being 
judged and disciplined by God because of their arrogance toward Israel and Judah. And this becomes uh, clear uh, earlier, said, um, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. This is in verse verse 2. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? In other words, who can, who can defeat me? We're so glorious. And that would explain that when Edom is at its high point, there were always these battles with, with Israel. And we talked about a couple of them uh, last week in, um, when we looked at the pa- passages in, in Chronicles. So this looks like uh, it's an eschatological judgment. For the day of the Lord upon all nations is near. And when you have a judgment brought against Edom in the Old Testament, it's not against all nations. It is against Edom. This is against part of a broad campaign that is against all the nations. The other question we need to ask is this a time of judgment only, or does it include a time of blessing? Well, the answer to that question, it's a time of judgment only. It doesn't include a time of blessing. So that's all the time we have for tonight. We'll come back next week, and we'll get into the uses in Isaiah. And there we may see some different things, because we have each each passage is going to have different characteristics, and so we'll just start making a list of what we see in these in these passages. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at your word this evening, to come to try to understand these passages and what you have revealed to us, putting these things together to get an understanding of what is described in Revelation, what's described in 2 Peter 3 and understanding this time of future judgment and how these passages interconnect. And we pray that you would guide and direct us as we reflect and meditate, think upon these things, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.